0: Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com.
1: I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking
0: Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program,
1: visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more.
0: And hello, and welcome to Chef's Story. This is Dorothy can Hamilton, and today we are broadcasting from the International Culinary Center. And my guest today is a New York institution. Um, I think a lot of people, if you say, "What's your favorite restaurant?" neighborhood restaurant, because it's better than a neighborhood restaurant, but I think it's the ultimate: to the Red Cat. And Jimmy Bradley is one of the, I guess, most beloved uh, culinary figures in our uh, city because he's opened a lot of different restaurants. He's had lots of different ideas. He's been featured in New York Magazine, Food and Wine, Bon Appetit, and the New York Times. He's been on the Today Show, Top Chef Masters, the CBS Early Show. He's he's published his Red Cat Cookbook. Um, he's, he's done a lot. He has a lot to share with us, and I'm so happy you're here with us today. Welcome, Jimmy.
1: Thank you for having me, Dorothy.
0: So, so I mean, you're, you're, you know, like the ultimate New York restaurateur, I think. Cool and hip, and you know, you you were part of the whole New York sort of revolution, evolution of American restaurateurs taking over from what uh drew nieperon calls the la restaurants right um so where did this all start where did you where were you born where did you grow up and were you a, a foodie from the age you know of four
1: <clears throat> that's a great question uh, it all starts for me. I guess I was born in Rhode Island, and then I was raised in Rhode Island in Philadelphia. My mother lived in Philadelphia. My father lived in Rhode Island. And we kind of moved back and forth often. So I was never really in one place for more than, let's say, two or three years So I had a lot of opportunity to move around and see different things, and um, I guess ultimately I moved to New York in 1994, and that's where this chapter started.
0: So how'd you get into restaurants? Are you family in restaurants?
1: Uh, Yeah. My family's in the wine business, um, both in... Europe, in Italy, and in America. So my cousin is the proprietor and winemaker of the Pio Cesare winery in Alba, Italy. Uh, He's the fourth generation proprietor. His father, before that his grandfather, before that his great-grandfather. They've been making wine in the same building since let's say about 1860, and then uh, in the early 1900s, a small faction of that family moved to Pennsylvania, and they started a company called the Bartolomeo Pio Wines and Spirits Company, and in that company, my whole family really worked for it, so it was my great-grandfather's company, had three sons and two daughters. And everyone worked for the company. My grandmother was the uh, the, f- the chemist for the company. So, Your
0: gra- was she a trained chemist?
1: Uh, my grandmother was, um, she had several jobs. She taught uh, English in high school, and then she also attended University at Davis and was a, a trained wine chemist at the end. Oh,
0: that's amazing. What year was that?
1: Uh, this was probably in the 50s because um, you know, she had a, a high education, but in America in the 50s, they weren't hiring um, ethnic people, the Italians and the Irish, for bigger jobs in schools like that. So for instance, um, she was uh, offered a job in the physical education department instead of the uh, English department, and then she would sub and fill in, and then ultimately she became an English teacher, but before they gave her the job, she had to do other jobs. And my grandfather always wanted everybody to work in the company, and everybody did, uh, his rule for her was um, you just have to wear pants, and then you get to work in the company. So he sent her to school, and she became the, the chemist for the company. The, she, she made the blends.
0: So was she from Italy originally?
1: Uh, yeah, my, my grandmother and her family was born in Italy, and they all came um, I'm not, I'm not certain when they all arrived or if they all arrived at the same time. But for years, they all worked together. So, like, one of the stories is my great-grandfather would ask you to work six days a week, maybe seven if it was necessary, for 11 months a year straight. And then you would get a month off, and he would give you his Cadillac and some <laughs> boat passes to sail to Genoa. And you would have a month off with your family hanging out in Italy, um, you know, doing family things, but also maybe learning about wine as well.
0: So did this grandmother and grandfather have a big Italian table that on Sundays you sat down to? Was this the great American Italian immigrant experience? And it's, do you remember those? Can you tell us about those?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was very much that Uh, big Italian type uh, arrangement. Lots of cousins, everybody hanging out together on um, Sundays and dining together. It wasn't with my um, grandfather. I never met my uh, maternal, or uh, I never met my paternal grandfather. Um, But my grandmother had a bunch of siblings. There was five of them, and everybody had kids, so there was lots and lots and lots. And I was one of the only boys of a certain age. There, there was only one cousin older than me, and he's the one that actually runs the company these days. And so I was you know, thought about and slotted to participate in the Bartolomeo Wines and Spirits Company in Pennsylvania but I just couldn't get past the salesman portion of it and that's when I decided to give up and pursue other things
0: so what what age was that how did you get into the food element of it
1: well it was it was always there. there. There was no specific age. They were always doing something. So like in my grandfather's house, he would, he would have grapes in his basement and he would crush wine to mess around with but to drink at the table. We would buy whole pigs and we would make salumi and charcuterie. You know, this is real old world thoughts and these were old world people and they were a little bit do things and they were trying to, you know, keep their traditions and heritage alive but also they very much embraced... America and the opportunities. So it was a little bit of holding on to the past while while really jumping in, um, you know, head first into what's new. But they, they were really grounded. They always had stories and had ways for you to participate with anything that has to do with food or beverage. All
0: right, so when you were 10 years old, fifth grade, what did you want to be when you grew
1: up? Oh, that's great. Well, you know, I think, young little boys might want to grow up and emulate their father or a a large uh, figure in their family. (laughs) My father was a mathematician, or my father is a mathematician, and I didn't think that was really for me. Uh, And when I grew up in Rhode Island... Um, I grew up in a little town called Narragansett, Rhode Island, and Point Judith is in Narragansett, and that's the fishing port of Rhode Island. And everybody that I knew there um, either worked for the university, which is what my father did, or was a fisherman. I was always really kind of attracted to the sea and um, fishing. Uh, but I, I never had a specific thought about what I wanted to be. I was always interested in the food and the wine. I was always interested in nature and history and politics. And and that was about it. So I I, I knew it would be something uh, that fit into those categories, but I, I really didn't know what it was going to be until I started cooking.
0: And when was that?
1: Uh, well, um, I grew up uh, without a lot of advantages and there was a, a lot of challenges. So I took jobs from very early ages. I forged my working papers and started working, uh, entered the, the working world at, at 12 years old, maybe 13 years old. And I was a, um, I had two jobs. So
0: people get fake ID today to drink. Yeah. You got You got fake ID to make Drinks. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I did, I did to make some money so I could, you know, buy clothes and maybe get a car one day. So, I had two jobs um, while I was in, um, I guess that's middle school. At that point, I was in about eighth grade, and I was a busboy and I was also a dishwasher, and um, I really liked both of it, and it was a a, a good thing for me to see both sides and. The manager asked me if maybe I wanted to train to be a waiter. And so I started to train to be a waiter, and I really kind of liked that because there was a lot of more instant gratification working directly with the people. And uh, financially, it was very seductive. Uh, you know, people giving you cash tips at the end of every night at 12, 13, 14 just seemed fantastic to me. So I did this for a few years, and then. One day I, long before it was as popular and you know kind of accepted as it is now, I shaved my head bald. 1985, maybe. And so I went to work, and my boss said, uh, "You're fired." And I said, "Well, you know, you just promoted me, so maybe we think about it a different way." So he took my hand like I was a child, and he walked me into the kitchen, and he said, "Um, Chef, you know this guy? He said to me, you know the chef? He said, now you work for him. You don't work for me anymore. And that was it. Ever since that day, I've never had another full-time position in the front of a house of a restaurant other than, you know, I own businesses and work in the front of the house every day now.
0: So, um... What was the cuisine you were cooking i mean what did you like the kitchen was it was it much better than front of house I mean what were your feelings
1: uh, I really liked the kitchen um Again, I think I was talking about like um, instant gratification of going from a server to a busser. The gratification of the kitchen really struck me as something that I wasn't familiar with and I really kind of gravitated towards it immediately. Like in other words, accountability can be like a bad buzzword, but... Like if you go to work and you do well and you feel good about it, it's a good thing. And so it kind of clicked. Um, And to go from a point we spoke about, I grew up in an Italian family that had a lot of food and always spoke about food and always not celebrate it like we celebrate it today, but really very cognizant of food. So like, for instance, in my first job as a Well, my first kind of fine dining job, my first job in the kitchen was in a pizza store, and I started the day President Reagan was shot. But my first real fine dining type job, and we can't call it that, was a fish house, like a fried fish house in Narragansett, Rhode Island, so thousands of covers each night but you know fried flounder fried scallops, fried shrimp, fried clams, fried combo plate baked combo plate, broiled combo plate there's every kind of seafood you could imagine but one of the funny things is it's a little longer of a story but just as a, a quick intro to it. I could make better ravioli than our chef at that point and it was only just because of what I learned at home You know, so I kind of, it it came somewhat easy. It was the first thing in my life that ever really kind of opened itself up and somewhat came easily. Mm -hmm. Like, I knew I would have to work all day, every day to understand it and and be better at it and participate on a high level. Mm -hmm. But, like, it felt good, it felt right. And I felt like I could just jump in and make sense of it and I could hopefully make a career out of it.
0: So um, how, did you, how did you jump from, now you, you know, probably by the time you were 16 or 17, you had a real sense of front and back of house. How long did it take before you owned your first restaurant, and wh- wh- what were the steps that you had to go through to get there?
1: Got it. Um, the steps to get from, you know, intro into the business, owning your own restaurant, or plethora uh, for me. I uh, became a cook and I was attending university at the same time and all the funds that I was using from work would go to pay for school and it was really a lot for me. And I noticed that I really, really enjoyed cooking. So I wanted to start to pursue this more. So then I um, rose up in the ranks of the kitchen. And when I became a sous chef, I was like, I want to become a chef. And then when I became a chef, I said, I want to own my own business because some of the operators are telling me to do things that I think I might do differently or I have other ideas that I think might fit here or there. So uh, I always, once I got the fact that I w- really wanted to participate in the kitchen, that I knew I wanted to be a chef, then I knew I wanted to own my own business. So my goal for myself was to open my own business by the time I was 30 years old. Wow. And I didn't know where it was going to be. So what I decided to do was to absorb my own learning curve. Like, in other words, from taking a position and maybe having a mentor or two and growing your resume that way, taking lots of positions, and not necessarily ones that would build your resume and make it look a certain way, but ones that would empower you with knowledge, whether it was good or bad. Um, you know, I think the thing is a lot of people take they work at a lot of different places and they take away little bits from each one that they like and maybe build their own fabric from there. I guess in hindsight, what I learned is I mostly just took what I didn't like because I want to make up what I want to do next together with the people that I'm with. So it's really a a, a culmination of uh, I don't want to do this and I don't want to do this because I've seen that and I've seen this. So in 10 years, I lived in many different states, maybe eight or nine different states, and I had every job there is in the industry. So... Like, I was the chef of a restaurant that had 26 seats. I was the chef of a restaurant that had 1,100 seats. I worked for large publicly traded companies. I worked for mom-and-pop type shops. I worked at the beach in Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard. I worked in the mountains in Colorado. I worked in as many cities as I could afford to move to and live in. I worked in Philadelphia, I worked in Boston, I worked in New York, I worked in San Francisco, I worked in Miami. And these were all just ways for me to absorb my learning curve while not sitting still and attending uh, a university, a culinary university or uh, secondary education. So it was just a a way for me to... um, gain as much knowledge as I could whether it was good or bad and um, to see if I could be ready by the time I was 30 to open my own business
0: well we're going to take a break and we'll be right back to hear about wow (laughs) that's quite a resume Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast regional forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Chef's Story, and this is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today my guest is Jimmy Bradley, who's the chef owner of the Red Cat here in Chelsea in New York City. And, I, you know, I have to say, Jimmy, I, I've interviewed quite a few chefs. I don't know anyone that has quite that background. I mean, you were determined. So how long would you stay at each of these places?
1: Uh, The the drawback was I wouldn't be able to stay for a long time. Uh, I think university in the culinary arts is maybe two years. Uh, I think I was doing maybe up to 18 months in each. So it was pretty long. I, I don't think it was less than six months. I don't think it was more than 18, but... Which was
0: your favorite out of
1: all of those? Oh, that's a great question. I think my favorite was the, I was the, I worked at a restaurant at Martha's Vineyard, which is no longer open, but I had a job for eight months a year and then I had four months a year off. And so I could travel around and take jobs and learn all around the country knowing that I had a job, you know, starting in April each year. So it was, it's really a great thing for me.
0: What was the worst job you had?
1: Uh, I don't... The most challenging or difficult job I ever had was being the chef of a restaurant that had 1,100 seats and was also part of a publicly traded restaurant group. There's a lot of um, politics and things that go along with big jobs like that and they take your focus away from the food and the center of the plate and the people. And, um, you know, that's why I'm in the business for those three things, you know, the people especially, the food especially. Um, but it was an invaluable learning lesson, and I still have great professional and personal friends from that job.
0: Well, what was the learning lesson?
1: Um, how can you make a dish... How could you take a dish that you're really comfortable making and you've achieved a lot of success with maybe serving 20 or 30 of them a night and try to do it where you're serving 300 of them a night and to not have that dish suffer at all? Obviously, we know we have to change it in certain ways, but if you have to bastardize the thing into submission, it might not be, you know, the most exciting approach to food. So it was a it was a significant challenge. Writing a writing a schedule for seventy five cooks is a challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, when the police come into your kitchen and ask for Roland and take him in the <laughs> middle of service because he jumped a turnstile or he went through a red light there was never a dull moment and it it was like being um a shortstop for the Yankees and never being trained for it because the balls were just coming at you (laughs) furiously hard and all the time and I mean we had a lot of great resources it was a big company I had great bosses and a great team but it was a real eye-opener in terms of wow this is this is a lot. This,
0: so, tell me, what was your dream for your first restaurant? What went into opening it? How'd you get the money for it? Um, who did you pull in? What What was the dream? Uh, and what was the reality? Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> so, my first restaurant, uh, my first fine dining restaurant that I opened as the proprietor, is the Red Cat, and it opened in '99. <clears throat> and my thought for the Red Cat was is an amalgamation but when I moved to New York in 1994 I saw a lot of things and one I didn't fully understand and it goes like this so maybe there's four or six or eight four star restaurants and then I think in the late 90s there was about eight or eleven or twelve three star restaurants and then there was like maybe you know seventy five or two hundred Two-star restaurants, and then a thousand one-star restaurants, and then eleven thousand no starred restaurants, and it looked to me that the the middle was kind of wide open, and that a lot of people wanted to have the most exclusive and fabulous places, um, but then you know the majority of people were doing restaurants that didn't necessarily hit the radar, and so I thought. There's got to be a way to do something that's really alluring and fun and attractive that fills a little bit of this void. And I was just shocked that there was what I perceived as a void in the marketplace in New York City. So my thoughts were, might be been traveling around the world and going to restaurants, and there's always this restaurant that's never at the top of the guidebooks, But when you speak to people about it, they generally say, that's a really good joint. You should go there. You'll like it. You won't be disappointed. Just go. And you say, well, everybody recommends this. Why not go to this place? You'll like it. And um, they're not always the fanciest and most expensive and certainly not the most um, uh, prolifically written about and things like that. But what I noticed is when I went and left, I agreed with everything that I was told. It's a really great joint, and who knows why it's not all the way spoken about, but I would definitely go back to that place, you know? So little places like, you know, maybe Shea Black or Lemie Louie or not big, not fancy, but just a can-do kind of place where people speak kindly about it, and then after you've gone and been served, you, you say, I, I would like to go back. Um, so that was kind of the thought behind the Red Cat is...
0: What was the first menu?
1: <laughs> this is funny. The first menu of the Red Cat had sardines and calves liver on no. the menu. And my business part... Well, first I moved to New York and my famous uh, operator, who owns maybe 30 restaurants now... And he still owns the restaurant that I worked at. It's just on its third name now. So three different chefs, myself being one of them, and three different names. So I I said to this fella, I want to put a pork chop on the menu. And he said, "Uh, we don't do that in this town. I said, I don't know what that means. And he said, well, you know i'm jewish and you know one out of every or seven out of every ten people in new york are jewish jewish people don't eat pork chops and that's ridiculous and you're not going to serve a pork chop in my restaurant so hmm, i wonder because something doesn't make sense so um that was one of the first things i heard or learned and i didn't believe it so then when i went to open the red cat of course i had a pork chop on the menu but i had my proposed menu had a liver, calf's liver, and sardines. And my business partner said to me, Do you really think this is what people want to eat? I said, Yes. And, and he said, I don't. And I said, Well, just because you don't eat it doesn't mean people want to eat it. Let's see. Let's just open and see. And he said, How about this? Pick one of them, we'll do that one, and we won't do the other one. So I said, OK, we'll serve calf's liver, and we won't serve the sardines. But there's this thing in the restaurant business where every now and then we'll make plates of food and we'll send them out to people complimentary for whatever reason it is. Maybe it's your birthday. Maybe it's because you've dined with us 20 times. It's a little something that we want you to have that shows that we recognize something. It's just a gesture. And so he would say... Let's have a gesture on this table. Let's have a gesture on this table. Let's have a gesture on that table, and I'd send them all sardines. (laughs) And and he would hate it. He'd be like, "Do you really think the table of ladies wants sardines?" I said, "Well, let's ask. Let's let. Let's find out." So I was buying and giving away sardines, like, let's say, five pounds a week. Then it got to 10 pounds a week. I said, I'm going to just put them on the menu and see how it goes. Then the same thing with the liver. We would sell one, maybe two a night. And my business partner would come to me and say, see, I'm right. People don't want liver. And my thought was that, you know what? People don't know us, and people want liver, They just don't know if they can trust us yet. So once they get comfortable with us, they will order the liver. And so, you know, within a month, we'll sell three. Within six months, we'll sell five. Within a year, we'll sell 20 a night. And that's kind of exactly what happened. So the liver just built up its own momentum and its own speed at its own time in the sardines. Started by giving them away free for the first six months, then putting them on the menu and now they just sell like we thought they would sell in the beginning. But it was an exercise in not just telling people you want to have this or you should have this or I want to do this. It was a, a little bit of an organic approach. Let it happen and see what happens.
0: So today at the Red Cat what, What's your most popular
1: dish? Uh, <clears throat> the most popular dishes at the Red Cat, it, it's hard to count at the Red Cat because we set it up to always change. So, you know, this locavore stuff and this farm-to-table stuff, that was always in the DNA. Because, you know, quite frankly, that was the DNA when the pilgrims were walking around. You know, if you can catch it and you can grow it and you can kill it, you can eat it. They weren't sending boats to Chile to look for strawberries, nor do I think we need to. So it was always in our DNA to not use things that weren't perfect or perfectly in season, that didn't fit our story. So lots of things would just go away and come back. So if it's popular, and to answer your question, there's only two dishes out of 30 dishes that have been on the menu since the day we opened, right? And so maybe they're the most popular ones if you add up over time the 15 years we've been open. But, you know, the big ones that sold last week are we put a strawberry rhubarb salad on the menu a week ago starting spring. And, I mean, that's the only dish I see selling right now. In other words, every table has one.
0: Okay, we're going to take another little break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Chef Story, and this is Dorothy Can Hamilton. And today, my guest is Jimmy Bradley of the Red Cat, but he had three other restaurants too. Let's get into that today. What's what's happening? What happened to the Great Harrison down in Tribeca?
1: Oh, uh, well, thank you for asking. Um, the Harrison, uh, we signed the lease April 1st, 2001, to take possession of the Harrison. And our opening date was September 17th. And it was a hard one. We were ready. Um, so, I mean, it was a hard opening date. It was set. So, like, Food & Wine magazine was throwing us an opening party. We expected in between two and 300 people. The invitations were in the mail. We were just basically putting the uh, finishing touches on the physical plant. And I was there, and my business partner was there uh, that Tuesday morning. And, um, you know, I mean, everybody knows the story from there. Uh, I think one of the great things for small business and the restaurant business in this tragedy was the public officials went on television and said, if you want to support Dine Out downtown now, and that would be a a big support. And um, the mayor wrote us a really pretty letter, you know, thanking us, acknowledging that we were the first business to open in lower Manhattan since the tragedy and, um, you know, acknowledging us and saying nice things and that he would come and he would tell people to come and things like that. So it was born out of a very significant challenge. And, you know, we never knew if we would ever be able to open. But the thought was that we had a desire to build a neighborhood restaurant in a great neighborhood in lower Manhattan, and now more so than ever, that neighborhood um, could use a place, you know, an unaffected place for drinking and dining and socializing or just getting out of your house maybe. So... um,
0: you had a lease for how long?
1: We signed a ten-year lease April first, so we were going to be there till 2011. Subsequently, we were able to sign other leases, and um, we were there till 2014. Uh, what happened in the process? We Tribeca changed a good amount in the process, and also our landlord sold the building and a real estate developer bought the building and that triggered a conversation about the third lease renewal and um, we were just too far different in the numbers. I mean, the restaurants basically buy and sell commodities and, you know, the market somewhat dictates what the threshold of that commodity can cost or would sell for. So, you know, in other words, even if you buy the best chicken in America, I don't think you can sell the chicken for much more than 30 or $40. It'd be pretty hard to sell a $125 chicken in yes. New York City. So um, our rent, you know, went up about, our proposed rent went up about 440%.
0: Absolutely.
1: So there was no cost Increase that we could look at that would make any sense for any consumer to be interested in. Uh, And, you know, basically what it looks like is taking place now is the smaller mom and pop type businesses can't really compete with the national businesses, and the landlords are selecting the national businesses. Uh, because they're the ones that will pay the top dollar. So it's not about a relationship. You know, if you have a 14 year relationship with somebody and you're the only person, let's say that landlord owned that building for 35 years and they signed three leases with three different operators, and we're the only operators to ever last the first 10 year lease and get another renewal. And be the only ones that paid the rent on time for that amount of time. If you can just look at that and say that doesn't mean anything to me, that's that's the point I'm making.
0: Mm-hmm. So how do you think we're gonna see many restaurants on ground floor levels uh, in Manhattan with these because the same thing, Lake Cole here is closing after thirty one years because our rent's gone up four hundred percent. Four hundred percent. You can't. You can't possibly put a chicken on a plate. So, so what? What do you see as the future in in Manhattan? Do you think the better, great little restaurants are all going to be in in boroughs and outside in New Jersey and where people can afford to have a have a really uh, their own joint?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to say it. Um, I guess. I was thinking about it a little bit because I did a lot of resort work and like, if you go to Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard if you go to Aspen, if you go to Sun Valley most of the people who own and run the businesses can't afford to live in those towns so it's only the customers that live in those towns and what if that happens to Manhattan? What if that happens to New York? The other side or the other thought is that there's always a correction. Whatever goes up comes down or changes in a certain way. So if you think about it, in 1978, Mayor Beam said to President Ford, we, we're we going to declare bankruptcy, and we just don't have any money to float this anymore. And the president said, no, you're not. Absolutely not. I
0: think he said drop dead, right?
1: <laughs> Pres- or
0: the Post, no, said, yeah, the, the Post said drop dead.
1: You're correct. That was... That was the title of the front page that yeah. day. But I guess my point is that landlords in 1978, you could get a 99-year lease for below market. And when I moved here in the 90s, you could still get 30, 40, 50. I signed 30 years on a 99-year lease for that project called It's a Wrap that I was telling you about before. Mm-hmm. So, um there's always going to be a correction, and if landlords couldn't make two nickels in 1977, 1980, then we know we had a, a good market until '87. Then the market went down about 92, 95. Market got really strong again. There's been enough. it doesn't seem to have slowed New York down at all. In other words, there hasn't been a a decrease in anything in New York after 2008. So the thought is that sooner or later there will be a correction that will be some sort of fair market where it went from landlords not able to make any money and operators having great deals to right now where it's there is no such thing as a great deal left and only landlords are making great deals. I'm, I'm hoping and I think if history's taught us anything there's always a correction and that's somewhat of a compromise where you get to meet in the middle and everybody gets to make a little bit of money except for one group making all the money and or putting the other groups out of business.
0: So, what's the future? I mean, what's going to happen with Red Cat? How long is your lease there? How do you how do you live in this economy and still make food? How do you think restaurants are going to have to change?
1: Well, you know, Dorothy, it used to be in America that a small business person would make enough money where they could actually maybe buy the building that they're in and have security more so than the 10-year lease that they're in maybe have something to pass down to their children or child for a job or maybe for an investment. You know, those, those days are done in New York City right now. That's really unfortunate. It might just be. You know, again, with these corrections, in the 50s, you couldn't pay people to live in a city in America. If you were going to have kids, there's not a chance you were going to live in a city. Cities are wildly costly these days. So one of the thoughts or assumptions would be that the same thing is going to happen. People are going to lose interest in this, um, the challenge of living in a city. It's it's really cheap. It might be convenient, but there's a lot. Like in other words, if you're not going and using all of the things that the city has to offer, you're overpaying for nothing, you know? If you do go to the theater, if you do go to the park and you do use all the things, sure great. Maybe you're not, but so perhaps the correction is there's a mass exodus to the cities. The second that happens, the rents are going to change. You know, yeah. We know that. And also, the second these big box stores start to default on their leases, that's going to be a big one. That'll be the first part of the domino you effect. You think they will? Well, you can st- Starbucks is st- publicly saying that they have too many leases in New York City and that they can't afford all the leases that they have. I think that's a pretty good indicator of what's going to happen next.
0: It's like when we had all the banks on every corner, and then you don't see that much anymore.
1: Yeah, so I don't know what's going to happen next, but hopefully there'll be a correction within the next 5 or 10 or 15 years.
0: How have you seen restaurants change over your whole life what do you, you know is there is there a difference in the kitchen today? Are the people cooking today different than they were twenty years ago it 's front of house How, how have restaurants changed
1: uh, Restaurants have changed a lot like small businesses changed. Uh, it kind of used to be a lot more of an autocratic system and it 's a lot more of a democratic system these days. You know, it used to just be, and this might not be just specific to restaurants, but it used to just be people and employees were thankful to have jobs. Now, it's not just that anymore. You're, you're challenged on levels that you can't even imagine. Like, for instance, when you're, uh, you know, maybe 8 or $10 an hour, you um, Garmanger chef asked you When do you know You need to hire your own publicist The the thing is on its ear it, You know Like I never had that thought I didn't even think about hiring a publicist When I opened my own business So um, things change Things are changing And the great thing People are so Intricate um, people are so interested and educated about food these days and you can go in all these places and learn about all the people like study the menu before they arrive at your restaurant and know what they want I, I, I don't know about that you know but uh, the business has changed a lot in the um, 80's it was a little darker it was uh, more nefarious than it is now certainly with things like uh, abusive language and conduct, uh, uh, overuse of things, drugs and alcohol. It was it was very different business then. But I, you know, I wasn't in the business in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Maybe the business then was calm, and then it became not so calm. And you know, we're in a we're in a cycle now. Uh, to me, the business is a lot less personal. This technology is great, but I don't love it. I don't love the interpersonal thing. You know, one of the things is we we live and die by assuming we have a sale or not. So if you make a reservation with us, we assume we have a sale. That, you know, is legally some sort of contract, but the guests these days have no problem not honoring those contracts and/or maybe making multiple bookings at different places, and uh, choosing one at the last minute, maybe informing them, maybe not oh, informing that's,
0: them. That's old. I remember 30 years ago, Drew Nieperant, when he first opened Monrochet, he had a Dr. Smith on the books, and um, he, Dr. Smith, didn't show up. Eight o'clock on a Saturday night, stiffed him for four. So they had taken the telephone number to confirm, so he calls the number and he says, "Is Dr. Smith at home?" The babysitter answers and 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 the, the, the babysitter says oh, I'm sorry, they're out to dinner. And he said, oh, I'm a patient, and, and I'm a good friend, and I really need to talk to him. Can you get, tell me what restaurant they went to? And she said, yes, Lafayette, which was Jean Georges' first hotel. And he said, thank you so much. So he calls Lafayette, Drew calls Lafayette, and he gets Tony Fortuna, who is the major, d', you know, gent manager there, and he goes, Tony, do you got a Dr. Smith eating there? He goes, yeah. He says, you know, he's a friend of mine. Can you get him on the phone, please? So Tony says, you've got, a, you've got a caller. One of your patients is on the phone. I forget what he said. So he gets on the phone, and Drew said, Dr. Smith, you are never getting a reservation at Montrachet again. Do you realize I don't make a reservation to come on an appointment to see a doctor and not show up? Yeah. I, and I love that story. And that was 30 years
1: ago. That, you know? I love that story. There's another one that I heard from um – chef andre saltner and he if you didn 't honor your reservation at the end of the evening, he would phone you let 's say it was twelve o 'clock twelve thirty. And he would say, hi, it's, um, it's me, Chef Andre. And I'm, I'm calling because I'm concerned. Uh, you didn't honor your reservation this evening, and if I'm wondering if everything is all right. And the second part is it's just me here with a small group of my staff, and we're wondering if you might actually honor your reservation or if we should just pack up and go home now. 1230 <laughs> at night. That's guilt,
0: it. guilt, yeah, guilt. It's
1: a good one.
0: Well... Anyway, well, we're getting close to the end. What what words of wisdom do you have for somebody wanting to get into the business these days?
1: Oh, that's a great one. Okay, so, you know, listen, education is the silver bullet. There's no such thing as being too smart at all, ever. There's no such thing as knowing too much. So um, there is this thing these days that's popular where you get rewarded for, uh, you know, I'm not certain the best way to say it, but maybe not doing the hardest work, maybe not being the most diligent, maybe by taking shortcuts and cheating a little bit, you can rise to the top more quickly, and um, that feels okay. In other words, if they didn't call you out, so might as well just keep doing it. Uh, My advice would be to build your foundation for as long as you can and make it as strong as you can before you do anything uh, that really um, puts yourself on the line, opening a new business, taking an executive chef position, becoming a general manager, becoming a leader in any way. Uh, because, you know, you don't get a lot of second chances at this. And at the end of the day, you know, one of the biggest questions are, why would anybody want to work for you? Honestly, why would anybody want to work for you?
0: That's a great question.
1: And if it's because you're popular, I'm sorry, that is not going to help you for that many years. So it's, it's a lot more about what your house is built on and that's your foundation and you shouldn't even if people are offering you things and they're premature if you don't feel like you're ready you're probably not ready if you don't feel like you've done all the work that it's take that it takes to be rewarded with that next position and also to flourish in that next position because listen you can get a job somebody can offer you a job it doesn't mean you're going to be any good at it so perhaps, you know, if you want to be good at it and you want to contribute on a high level in this business, there's only one way to do it. You have to have a solid core foundation of, of knowledge and ability. And you can't cheat. You can have successes that, you know, feel like you might be able to not do all the heavy lifting that you were told or you thought you had to do but sooner or later it'll come back to you and you'll wish that you spent more time building your foundation because it's, it's whatever, however weak your foundation is that's however strong your building is so the, the, the saying is you're only as strong as the weakest person in your kitchen what if you're the weakest person what was going to come next
0: wow on that note and I've never heard better advice. I, I want to thank you, Jimmy, for coming today. It's really been a pleasure.
1: Oh, thank you, Darcy.
0: And I want to shout out to Robin Cohen and Jack Ginsley, our producers. And thank you for listening today. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network.